Some of you know already, but I recently finished building a playset for Jesse, and it was quite an undertaking because I'm much less than a carpenter, and it was it was uh, it was something else. But the construction part of it, for the most part, went well. Uh, got the got the structure all up, got the deck part up, and that that all went well. The part that really gave me troubles was the roof. I had the worst time getting the angles right, cut my rafters, trying to get the roof up, and and uh, it, it was it was just a, a bad deal. And and of course, then we had the strong winds the other day with the storms that came through, and I half expected it to uh, blow some shingles off, blow the roof off, or something. It, I, I was half expecting to see something laying out in the yard. Thankfully, that didn't happen. Uh, but I could just imagine, after all the work and trouble I went to, as frustrated as I was, I mean, I had a whole day that was just wasted with cutting rafters, and boy, it was. I was I was not happy with with doing that. But anyway, I could just imagine how upset I would be after having gone to all that work, all that trouble, if I went out and there's the roof laying out in the yard. And of course we've had our fair share of roof troubles here at the church. Uh, but our text today is going to feature some guys that went and broke a hole in somebody's roof. And I could just imagine as I read through this what it must have been like to have somebody break a hole in the roof of your house. How how uh, upsetting that would be. Now, I've titled my sermon, I've Got a Hole in My Roof and I Don't Know What to Do. Um, the text is, you probably remember the story, it's out of Mark, it's actually in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, and we're going to pick up reading in verse 1. And the guys that, that broke this hole in the roof, they didn't go there to vandalize the place, it wasn't some impish fun that some teenagers were having. Instead, they were trying to get their friend to Jesus, and that was the only way they could come uh, come across doing that. Now, the text has all kinds of human interest in it, all kinds of things that we want to uh, maybe focus on, but the central truth of this text, I think, is that Jesus has the power to forgive sin. Jesus has the power to forgive sin. Now, that probably doesn't come as a shock to anybody here, but it is an important truth that this text highlights, and I want to highlight that today. So, uh, when you found Mark 2, please stand with me. And we're going to read verses uh, 1 to 12 here. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. When he, speaking of Jesus, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no longer uh, room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the, the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son, has, Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. There we go. Please have a seat. 
As I said, there are all kinds of things that draw our attention in uh, in this text, but the first thing that I want you to, to notice is that true faith produces action. True faith produces action. Now, Bart begins the story with a problem, and that is Jesus' popularity. Now, we may say today, how could Jesus being popular with the people be a problem? Well, it wasn't so much a problem for Jesus because it allowed him to get the message out uh, to more and more folks, but it was a problem for the paralytic and his friends who were trying to get up there and see Jesus. Now, sometime before this, and, and we're, we're, we didn't read chapter 1, as you know, but if we would have read chapter 1, you would have seen that uh, sometime before this, Jesus had been to Capernaum. That was the home of uh, Peter and Andrew. Of course, they were followers of, of Christ. And so he had went to their home, and that, that seemed to be kind of his base of operations when he was in Galilee. But he was there, and he was in the synagogue one day, and he healed a man with an unclean spirit. That got quite a bit of attention. And then he went home with uh, Peter and healed Peter's mother-in-law. And again, that got some attention. And then word began to spread all over the city that here's this man who can do wonders. Here's this man that can work miracles, who can heal people. And so that night, the Bible says that they began to bring all their sick, all their demon-possessed, all these people uh, were coming to Jesus to be healed. And one professor uh, in college that I had, uh, he, he he memorably put it memorably this way. It was like the night of the living dead. With all these people coming out, they were sick and, and, and coughing and hacking and moaning and, and there were probably people screaming out that were possessed. I mean, it, it was quite a scene that showed up at the door uh, to, to have Jesus help them. Well, he healed all those folks and he had quite a reputation in the area. But the straw, if, if you read Mark 1, the straw that broke the camel's back as rega- regarding his popularity was when he healed a certain leper. Now the leper came to him, Jesus healed him, and then he said, I want you to go show yourself to the priest as a testimony to them, but don't tell anybody what I've done. Keep it private. But like many of us, he disobeyed what Jesus had said, and he went and he began to publicize everywhere that Jesus had done this miracle in his life. Now most of the time we'd say, that's really good. You should testify about what Jesus has done. But he said specifically, don't do that. Well, what happened then was everybody uh, began to come and, and hound Jesus and flock him. He didn't have time to do anything. I mean, he, he didn't have a private life. He had to get up early, go out away from everybody early, early in the morning while everybody else was sleeping. He had to go out and pray. I mean, it was a bad deal. And finally, he decided, you know what, I'm going to go elsewhere so people can hear the message because I came to preach. And so they went out elsewhere. Sometime later, they come back to Capernaum. That's where we pick up in chapter 2. In verse 1. So he comes back into town, and evidently he does it kind of privately. But you know how it is in a small town. Word travels fast, and, uh, and, and word gets out that he showed up, and people again began to throng around Jesus. Now it got so bad, he, had, he went to a house, probably Simon Peter's house again. It got so bad, the house was full. Everybody, I mean, the, it, was, it was standing room only. And in fact, it was so bad that people were having to like stand outside the house and you know look in over their over people's head on their tiptoes, trying to hear what Jesus is saying. I mean, it is packed, and so that's the problem these people face. And it's into this situation these four friends bring their paralyzed friend. Now, this man is probably what we would call today a quadriplegic. He didn't have use of his arms or his legs, and we don't know why he was paralyzed. Now, oftentimes, when a person becomes a quadriplegic, it's because of some uh, trauma that's been done to the spine. Maybe they were in a car wreck. They dove into uh, shallow water. 
Sometimes it can happen because of disease like multiple sclerosis or ALS. Uh, but whatever the problem is, whatever the cause, the effect is the same. This man is helpless. He's totally dependent on others to get him around. And thankfully, this man had some good friends. We all need some friends like this, don't we? We all need to be, we all need to be friends like this, like this man had. But these men had faith, and, and really all five of them had faith, because the four of them had enough faith to actually bring him to Jesus. But the paralytic had enough faith to either request to be t- taken to Jesus or at the very least to be consented to, to be taken there. So anyway, these five men had faith, and so they came to Christ. But here's a problem. I'm going to see Jesus, but there are people in the way. I wonder how many times people go to churches and they're coming to, wanting to come to Jesus, but there are people in the way. But they, they can't get to him because of the crowd, I mean, they're packed in like sardines in a can. And so they, they, they can't get their friend there. Now, if it was us, I wonder, how many, what would we have done? It, it would have been easy to say, hmm, well, I'm sorry, friend, we're just going to have to come back at a, at a later time. Isn't that what we'd say? Maybe we can catch him tomorrow. We'll get up early and, and come and see him. Or maybe we would say, well, you know, buddy, we tried, but and I'd really like to stay and help, but I've got Zumba coming up. You know, we, 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 we come up with a... Some problem. Well, I've got work I've got to go back to. I took, you know, I took half day, and there's a lot of stuff going on. I can't really miss again. We, we, many times we would just kind of say, well, sorry, I know you're paralyzed, and that's bad, but I really got stuff going on. And that sounds harsh, but that's probably the way a lot of people would have done. But they had faith enough to not only bring the man where Jesus was, but then to overcome the problem. This obstacle that they faced was a trial of their faith. And they overcome it in a, in a memorable way because you'll notice in the text, they broke a hole in the roof and let their friend down in front of Jesus. Now, if we aren't careful, what we do is we read roofs like we have in southwest Missouri into ancient Palestinian desert life. Not even close to the same types of roofs. we talked about this some in the past, but even our buildings, our buildings are made mostly of wood, therefore made out of stone. We have uh, sloped roofs. They have flat ones. We have uh, ceiling joists, whatever, 16 inches or so. They have about every three foot. They, they use their roofs kind of like patios. They would, so they had a staircase outside their house that would go up there, and then they'd walk around. And, and instead of using shingles or sheet metal or plywood, any of those types of things, they didn't have those uh, items available. So what they did is they would take... Uh, thatch and, and mud and, and tile and ashes and all these different things. They mix them up, pack them in between the, the beams, put it on top, and then they pack it down real tight. And so it was strong, they could get up and walk on it. But it was fairly easily broken through, and, and you, could, uh, you could actually fix it pretty easily. So anyway, um, their culture was much different than ours, too. If somebody just came into your house, what would you do? Probably shoot them, right? I mean, if they came in uninvited, you'd be getting Smith and Wesson, or uh, you know, twelve gauge or something. You'd be like, "You better get out of my house," because um, you know, as as the bumper sticker of the song, whatever it is, says, "This house is protected by uh, a gun and, and God." And if you don't get out, you're going to meet them both pretty soon, or something like that. I mean, that's the way that we operate in Southwest Missouri, but that wasn't the case over there. The way that they would operate is they had a single door that faced out into the road. And whenever they got up in the morning, they would open it. 
And unless you wanted, expressly wanted privacy, your door was open until you went to bed. And they had literally an open-door policy. So if I'm walking along and I see that Jason and Amanda had their door open and I feel like going in and talking to them, I just walked in their house and I just talked to them. And then maybe, then maybe Shane sees me in there. He's like, hey, I haven't seen them in a while. I'm going to go in and talk to him too. So he comes in. And, and maybe, you know, maybe, maybe the whole church is walking by and they say, hey, there's some of our folks over there. And they go over and they start visiting too. It was an open-door policy. And, and people would just flock in sometimes. And that's what happened with Jesus. He's there. And so all these people showed up, probably uninvited, and were filling the house. Now, anyway, their faith in Jesus was so strong, it moved them to action. What we would consider an extreme action. And this is a powerful illustration of what James says in, in, later on in the New Testament. He says that faith without works is what? It's dead. Living faith produces action. It changes our behavior. And the inherent challenge in this text to me and I think to each person that names the name of Jesus is does the faith that you and I have, the faith that we claim to have, actually move us to action? Because if, if we look at this, this is an example of it. If we read James... He expressly says, if you have a faith that is real and living, it's going to make you do something. It's not going to be content to go to church and sit in your seat and nod your head with the preacher, maybe because you agree, maybe because you're asleep, maybe say amen, maybe give a couple dollars in the plate. That's not what he's talking about. He says that, that true, living, active faith is going to move you to do something. And that's what we see here. They're... they're their faith, their, their belief in Christ caused them to put feet to, to what they believed. And that's a challenge to each of us, I think. But faith without works is dead. Does, does our faith change the way that we live? Does it cause us to act differently than that person we know that doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with Jesus? Because it should. So the first thing that we see is that true faith produces action. Not only did it produce action for these guys, it, it caused them to move, but it actually brought forth action from Jesus. Faith is the basis of the, or the requirement for being forgiven. Look again at what, he, what it says in, um, in verse 5. And Jesus, what? Seeing their faith, since the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Faith was the basis of that. And really, forgiveness is our greatest need. These men let their friend down through the roof at Jesus' feet. And can you imagine? I, I try to put myself in the biblical story. Can you imagine either being Jesus or being one of the people that's sitting there listening to him? And here he is talking in a house. You know, it's hot. Ooh, a lot of people in this, the desert anyway. I mean, it's hot in there, stuffy. You know, people are coughing and moving around. Maybe there's some dust flying around. And all of a sudden you start hearing it. A thud. People walking around on the roof. And you, you can't do that quietly. You know that. And, and there's all this noise up there. And then there's this beating and banging. And, and Jesus has to stop. Because nobody can hear him. And dust is beginning to fall. And plaster is falling down. And, and a chunk of, of, of dirt hits you in the head. And you look up. And, and all this stuff is, is sprinkling down. And, and finally there's... there's more and more commotion. Finally, there's a hand that sticks through. And, and, and guys up there are, are hollering, making noise. Oh, we've got, finally gotten through. And all this commotion's going on. Can you imagine what that was like? 
These men are, are getting this, his, their friend to Jesus. Can you imagine what Peter thought? What do we know about Peter? I mean, he was kind of, he wasn't a hothead, but he was, he was out there. Can you imagine somebody breaking a hole in your roof? What'd you be doing? Hey, get out from there! Yeah, we'd be making a big fuss. I imagine Peter's really having a conniption. Somebody's making a hole in our roof. So these men make this hole in the roof and they lower their friend down. They don't plan on getting him back out. And Jesus sees their faith and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Fantastic scene. But it's interesting because why did they bring this paralytic to Jesus? So he could walk. I wonder if they said, that's it. I'm glad that his sins are forgiven, but we brought him here so he could, so he could stand and walk and shake our hands and hold his grandchild. And all these things, that's what we're here for, Jesus. And he says, your sins are forgiven. I wonder if they were let down a little bit, if they were confused at the very least. Because their focus seems to be on physical healing. I think the, the paralytic was there probably for both reasons. But I just wonder what they thought. And I think this is instructive to us because it highlights the fact that our physical needs, while they may be important, are not the most important. In John chapter 3, a ruler of the Jews came to Jesus by night, a man by the name of Nicodemus. You remember this story? And, and he comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, we know that you're come from God because nobody can do the things that you're doing except God be with him. Very kind, very, uh, you know, very, very gracious to him. And what did Jesus say? He didn't say, oh, thank you. Um, you know, tell me about yourself. He didn't, he didn't do any of that nicety stuff. He said, unless you be born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't see the kingdom of God. His most important thing was not his physical stuff. It was a spiritual need. And that's what Jesus did. He, he focused on the spiritual. He went straight to the spiritual matter because that is what's most important. Jesus came to make our whole beings well. As I read this, I can't help but think of Isaiah 53 that speaks of the suffering servant. And one of the things it says about the Messiah is that by His stripes, what? We're healed. By His stripes, we're healed. Now, I think it ties into, the, ties into what we're studying in this way. If you watch any of those guys on TV that claim to be faith healers, one of the texts that they will refer to is Isaiah 53. And they'll say, by his stripes we are healed. And I, I do not contend, I, I agree that physical healing happens because it's wrapped up in the atonement. Physical healing was provided on the cross. And I say that because um, Matthew chapter 8 quotes Isaiah 53 and it says that he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. But as you read Isaiah 53 in context, you see that the healing that is being spoken of by us stripes were healed is not primarily a physical issue. Because that whole verse actually says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. That's sin. He was crushed for our, not flu, he was crushed for our iniquities. That's sin. The chasing of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, or by his stripes, we are healed. See, Jesus' death on the cross provides salvation, 
both of the body and the soul. And, and, and both of these have, things happen in our text. The most important thing that we, most important need that we have is to be made well spiritually. Again, that's not to say that our physical needs are not uh, legitimate because they are, but, but the most important thing is a spiritual need. And this highlights that, that Jesus can not only heal physically, but he can forgive sins. He can heal us spiritually. Look at the last part of our text uh, in, in verse 6 and following. He says, your, your sins are forgiven. The scribes and the Pharisees were sitting there. And we know from other uh, gospel writers that basically all these religious leaders have been sent out uh, to kind of check up on Jesus, see what, see what he was teaching, see if they could have a problem with what he was saying. So he pronounced this man's sins forgiven, and that ruffled the feathers of some religious leaders. And that wasn't too hard because their feathers seemed to be perpetually ruffled with Jesus. And, and they actually make a correct statement. Look at, what, look at what he says. Verse 7, Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, they're right about the forgiveness, but they're wrong about the blasphemy. They had the right facts, but they came to the wrong conclusion. They understood what he was claiming. He says, your sins are forgiven. They said, only God can do that. In other words, Jesus is making an, an implicit claim to be God. He's saying, I'm forgiving your sins. They said, only God can do that. So now it's time for Jesus, to, uh, in our common way of saying it, put his money where his mouth is. He has to show them that he really is who he says he is. So, so what does he do? Well, he decides that he's going to uh, put on a demonstration. <coughs> he knew what was in their heart. It explicitly says that should have given them a clue. Hey, this guy is more than just an average guy. He knows what I'm thinking. That's omniscience, by the way. He said, which is harder? Um, look at Look at verse 9. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? Now, he's not asking them, which is closer to being a tongue twister? He's saying, which requires more power and authority to do? To say your sins are forgiven, or to actually heal somebody? The answer to that is that they're both equally difficult because no person can humanly heal somebody. No person can forgive sins. They both require God to do it. God must be involved. And that's really the point. If the healing didn't happen, then surely this man's sins were not forgiven. So Jesus sets him up. He says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, to heal you. If I, if I tell Heather her sins are forgiven, there's no way to know if I'm being truthful or not. Because there's no sign that says, Forgiven sin, forgiven sin, nothing like that. It, but a, a miracle is immediately verifiable. It's instantly, outwardly verifiable. If she's paralyzed and I say, you're healed and she still can't get up, then it's, you can see I was, I was not truthful. Now this would have been even more challenging to the Jews because at the time they believed that sin and disease or sin and suffering were directly related. Remember the man born blind who sinned this man or his mother that he was born blind? Or his parents, not necessarily his mother. And it's true that sin and suffering is the root cause, or sin is the root cause of, of disease and suffering, but there's not necessarily a direct 
one-to-one cause and effect relationship because sometimes we suffer for the sins of other people. And the rabbis taught that a man could not be healed unless his sins had all been forgiven. So what does Jesus do? They say, who does he think he is saying that he's forgiven sins? Only God can do that. And Jesus says, okay, I'll show you. You think that this it's easier to say your sins are forgiven? That's an inward thing. Nobody can see it. Well, if I heal the guy, then you'll know that I've got the power to do both. Now, this is my, this is the, this is my translation, my paraphrase. And so then he does it. He doesn't wave his hand. He doesn't do anything special. He just says, take up your pallet and walk. He just heals the man. Now, what does he show him? Number one, he's showing him he has the power to heal physically. Number two, he's showing him he has the power to forgive sin. Number three, if he can if he can forgive sin, that means he's actually God, because only God can forgive sin. They they thought it themselves. He didn't leave him any wiggle room. Jesus can forgive sin because Jesus is God incarnate. I am so glad that Jesus can and does forgive sin. Because, boy, I hold up a lot, don't you? I mean, sometimes I, it just doesn't even pay to get out of bed. And I just, whew, from sun up to sundown. Some days are a lot better than others. Some days are really bad. And there's forgiveness. And I'm so glad for that because none of us goes through life without sin. Sometimes, though, we sin and then we don't repent of it. Well, I'll, do, I'll, I'll ask God for forgiveness later. I'll put that off till another day. I will, you know, it's always tomorrow, and tomorrow never happens because it's always today, and we never never get around to it. Then, before too long, you know, we're, we're real close to God, then all of a sudden we wake up and we're out off in left field. How did I get there? Well, when you don't, you need to confess those sins, repent of them. Sometimes we think, well, I'm too big of a sinner. I've messed up too many times in this one area. I've messed up in such a big way, God cannot forgive that. Jesus doesn't know what I've done. Yeah, He does. He knew what you were going to do before you ever went to the cross, and He still died for it. Your sin is not so big that you're outside the grace of God. Nobody's is. And maybe, maybe you're a Christian, you've got some sin. Maybe it's uh, what you call a small thing. You just haven't repented of it. Today today would be a good day to come clean with God, don't you think? To say, you know what, God? I know that I did this, and I'm sorry, and I'm turning my back on it, and I'm going to live for you. Maybe it's some big sin. And you say, poof. It would only be by God's grace that He forgive me of that. Yeah, that's the point. We don't deserve it. It is grace. Or maybe you've never accepted Christ. Today is the day to do that. You're, you can't out God's grace. We're, we're sin abounded. Grace much more abounded. Repent. 